Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon. I'm a retired 27-year veteran of the NYPD. I retired as a detective sergeant out of Manhattan North Homicide Squad. And with me tonight, I have retired second-grade detective Phil Grimaldi from the Intelligence Unit. He's a 21-year veteran of the NYPD, and he spent a lot of time in the 6-0 Precinct Detective Squad. And with us also is retired police officer and attorney extraordinaire, Joe Murray, who's going to give us the legal part of this case. What we're talking about tonight, gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank Thanks, you. You're, no, you're, 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 you're obviously no stranger to the show. What we're going to talk about is the Lawrence Spear case, because June 3rd uh, of this month uh, was the 10-year anniversary of her dis disappearance. She disappeared on June 3rd, 2011. So as you guys can imagine, we're all parents. The horror of this case for her parents who have lived with this now for 10 years with no real closure to this case. And it's just as parents, as police, as investigators, we know how horrible this is for them. And we hope that we can help in some little way, maybe get people to give us a call, get a little closure, you know, spread some light on this case. And maybe, maybe we'll be able to help out from afar. But to open this up, I'm going to show a little, a little video of, uh, from a news station uh, in, in Indiana uh, that was recorded uh, very on June 3rd. So we're going to share this video to our screen. And we'll play it for you guys uh, and give you a little overview. No sound, Bill. Okay. That sound always gives him a hard time. Yeah, it, uh, let me go back to it, guys. I'll uh, hang on. I'll remove it and I'll put it back. Uh, hang on a second. I got to remove it again. Uh, one of the things is that um, obviously this this case is. Uh, is a national case. It's it's a case that's a national case. It's been covered, so you got to realize it. It's 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 ten years old. So the, the the fact that they've done they've done hundreds and hundreds of canvases, uh, thousands of canvases, searches all over the place, and it's it's just it's an incredible, you know, an incredible large investigation. I'm sorry, I'm having a hard time getting this. Uh, getting the sound on this. Maybe I'll skip it for right now and we'll, we'll get back to it. Let's just talk about what this, what this case is. Uh, Phil, there's a, there's a timeline uh, on this case that I'd like you to talk a little bit about and about what was going on before, uh, before, this, before she uh, became missing. June 3rd, this happened, and she was reported missing the next day. Why don't you uh, give a little light on what occurred? Okay. On uh, first, I'd like to say from the onset, obviously, uh, our hearts and sympathy goes out to the family. I, I, I said in the previous show that we did running up to this show that uh, I have two college age children that are in college right now, and uh, I have a high schooler going into college in a year or so, and I can't even imagine what they must be going through. That uh, I said they're probably stuck in neutral since uh, she was never found. 
Um, and I think that uh, they came to the realization that uh, something horrible happened to her. But uh, she was reported missing on the 3rd of June in 2011. But on at 12.30 a.m., which would actually be the, uh, the second going into the third, you know, it was on the third, but it was a little after midnight. She was with a friend of hers by the name of uh, David Ron, and they left her apartment and they went over to another uh, friend's apartment, uh, a friend by the name of uh, Jay Rosenbaum. And it appeared that they had already been drinking at that point. They were already uh, uh, had a few drinks in them. Uh, at about 1.46 a.m. after they left Rosenbaum's apartment, they went to a bar called Kilroy's. Um, there were witnesses there that stated that uh, she needed to be carried in just about. So she was already um, uh, pretty drunk, and the people she was with were pretty drunk. There was another guy by the name of Corey Rossman who was also present. And um, they stood at that bar for a, just under an hour, I'd say. And uh, she leaves at about 2.27 a.m. with Rossman. And um, she leaves her phone, her cell phone, and her shoes at the location at Kilroy's there's apparently some type of uh sandy uh something in the backyard with sand where she took her shoes off so she left her shoes and her cell phone which obviously the cell phone was uh very very important uh for safety reasons if she had had her cell phone with it the whole time she might have been able to have been tracked a little better but it was one of the things that that happened during the, the time uh just prior to her uh never being seen again and then at about 2.30, they were seen near the apartment where she lives. She was with um, Corey Rossman. And apparently she was so inebriated that, uh, yeah, there, there's a, a layout of uh, the area where this all took place. Um, she, some uh, A gentleman stopped uh, the two of them and noticed that she was pretty drunk. And he didn't like the way that uh, that. Uh, you know, that she was being handled by this guy. I think he had her over, over his shoulder, basically. Uh, his name was Zach Oates. And um, they actually got into a physical altercation when he noticed how drunk she was. And he said something to, uh, to Rossman. Rossman uh, may have uh, gotten belligerent with him and there was a little physical altercation. Um, at about 2.51 that morning, they're seen going back from the area of the apartment through an alley that led to a dirt road. And in that alley, they later recovered her purse and her keys. So she definitely was in there. They had video of that. And they made it back to uh, Rosenbaum's apartment where there was a guy by the name of Mike Beth that was also present. And from 3.30, uh, from about uh, 3 o'clock in the morning till about 3.30, they were trying to convince her to stay. Is th These are the statements that they made. Um, you know, the, the, the information that I'm given is basically a timeline that's on the computer. It's on Wikipedia. And I think a lot of the information that I just stated was kind of garnered from, uh, uh, statements that they had made. So they claimed that around three 30 that, um, R Rosen, uh, Rosenbaum, his, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Rosenbaum, his phone, he allowed, uh, Lauren to use it. And she made a call back to the guy who she originally went, uh, came walking out with no answer. And then another friend, no answer. And they say that they were trying to commit to the stay, but she insisted that she wanted to leave. And there was a little back and forth. And they claimed that about 4.30 in the morning was the last time that they saw her, that she left to go home to her apartment, which was walking distance away. But uh, there was conflicting reports on the internet and in Wikipedia that she was on video. And there was also a report she wasn't on video. We really don't know at this point, but she was, according to 
uh, what they say, she was last seen at about 4.30 in the morning. The next morning, her boyfriend texted her and a person, an employee of Kilroy's answered the phone and he must have explained that the phone was left there. And at that point is when she was reported missing. I think I have the video queued up. Thank you for that great uh, recap of the, of the timeline. I'm going to try to put the, the video on now and we'll get it playing. Is, is listed as a cold case. The answer to that is an unequivocal no. Tomorrow marks a heartbreaking milestone in the case of missing IU student Lauren Spearer. It's been 10 years since she disappeared. It's hard to believe, mm -hmm. you know, it's a difficult time for the Bloomington community and Bloomington police say that they have received more than 3,600 tips since that time and they have executed 10 search warrants just in the past three years. Of course, Lauren's parents are devastated and they have not given up their hope either. Tonight, our Jenny Runovich talks to a woman who's been fighting for justice on the Spears' behalf for a decade. For 10 years, her face, her story has been seared into our memories. Lauren Spear, the 20-year-old IU sophomore who vanished after a night out with friends in Bloomington, a high-profile mystery that remains unsolved. Lauren feels like all of us, right? She, she's me, she's your daughter. She's my best friend from college. She's my little sister. I think it's just terrifying to think something like this can happen in a small town. And I think it's even more terrifying that we don't have the answers today that we need. For 10 years, Kristen Getterman has been helping to seek those answers on social media. She stayed anonymous until now, the voice behind this Twitter campaign. At its greatest, it grew to 25,000. Today, 10 years later, it's a little over 19,000. We got, you know, folks like Kim Kardashian and Ryan Seacrest and the major news outlets to retweet that information. And that was critical to the story um, because it, it did spread like wildfire because of the interest of Lauren. Like many people, Kristen learned about Lauren scrolling through social media the day after the IU sophomore disappeared. She saw a video of Rob and Charlene Spearer calling out Lauren's name in the woods. What we can't deal with is what we don't know. And I think just hearing, you know, their desperation and their voice alone in those woods really was truly haunting to me. I just thought I need to stop and figure out a way to help this family as quickly as I can. She didn't know the Spearer family, didn't even live in Bloomington. But Kristen's family went to IU, so she treated this disappearance personally, joining those heart-wrenching searches, retracing Lauren's steps, asking for help on Twitter. I started, you know, tweeting out Lauren's picture, information about what had happened. I created the hashtag #FindLauren, um, and really thought it was something that would last maybe 48 hours until they found her. It's lasted much longer. Over the years, Kristen has become like family to the Spears, and this account has generated thousands of shares, offers from searchers and psychics, hundreds of leads. Bloomington police used some too, but here's all we know after a decade. Lauren was out with her friends uh, that evening, um, stopping at a, a couple of different places, including a bar and then a friend's apartment, and landed at another sort of small house party very late into the evening and 
um, left for her apartment around 4 a.m. She walked to the corner of 11th and College and was never seen again. Kristen doesn't have any theories of what really happened to Lauren, but she's certain someone knows. Some way, somehow, I believe that truth will come out. Someone can't live with this forever. It will just be a matter of time. And she pledges to keep sharing Lauren's story until she's found. I'll be forever an advocate for Lauren and the Spear family. They deserve answers, and, and Lauren deserves that justice. Lauren's parents are obviously just as committed as day one to finding their daughter. The FBI is still working the case, too. If you can help, they desperately want to hear from you. We have links on how you can share those tips on WTHR.com. Joe, as you can see, uh, there's a lot to this case that we are not privy to. We are not privy to the case folder. We are not privy to 10 years of investigative leads. We're not privy to all of the legal maneuvers that have made. But one of the things I, I want to ask you about, Joe, is obviously the parents took some action uh, because they filed a civil suit against three of the individuals who were last seen with Lauren. Could you touch upon that, Joe? Sure, yeah. I uh, Again, I just want to sympathize with the family. My daughter herself, she's 23, and I struggled with the idea of her going away to school and she was selecting certain very party uh, campuses that she wanted to go to, and, and a lot of them were down south. So I was so happy when she decided to stay locally and went to Delphi. Thank you, Casey. Um, but I know what these parents are going through. It's got to be agonizing. So I think part of their frustration was not getting any real solid uh, advancements in the case. They decided to be proactive themselves. And they filed this wrongful death action. They did it initially in state court, which I thought was smart. I find, at least in New York, I'm sure it's the same there, is that the state court is a little more flexible with deadlines and time. And, and uh, you know, the federal court is very procedural. They're very strict. Uh, they construct their, their rules very uh, strictly. So they initially filed it as wrongful death action, three claims, essentially, uh, a common law negligence that, uh, you know, that the, the elements of negligence, duty, breach, causation, and harm. Did they have a duty to care for her? Did they breach it? Was it the proximate cause? And what was the harm? And then they have two more claims, essentially very much the same. One is negligence per se. Per se means you violated the law. So it's per se that you were negligent because you broke the law. And then the third one is that Dram Shop Act, that she was visibly intoxicated and they continue to serve her. So, and that is the law on the negligence per se action. So I thought it was brilliant that they did it because now they can compel different uh, discovery, including depositions of the defendants and uh, subpoenas that would go out. So I thought it was a brilliant maneuver to do, especially for a parent who's agonizing over not having any answers, not even any closure about where her body is. So uh, I applaud them for that. Unfortunately, in the federal court, the rules are very strict and the defendants, uh, the three of them filed uh, a motion to dismiss initially. And the first claim was dismissed. The common law negligence was dismissed. 
that was the only case against Mike uh, Beth is his last name. Uh, yes. That was the only yes. claim against him. So they let him out of the case completely. But the court allowed the other two claims to go forward, the negligence per se and the Dram Shop Act against the two remaining uh, defendants, uh, Rosenbaum and Rossman. So what should have happened once you survive a motion to dismiss, now you're open to, to engage in discovery. What should have happened is they should have moved forward with discovery right away. And uh, then once discovery is complete, either side can move for what's called summary judgment. Summary judgment is essentially saying there are no disputed facts for us to make out our case that a jury would need to decide. You can decide it as a matter of law. So it was a very tactical decision, but the defendants moved for summary judgment almost immediately after that because they knew Obviously, there's no body, uh, so damage is hard, but the proximate cause, you have to prove that your negligence was the proximate cause to the harm. There was no discovery yet, so they moved for summary judgment. Now, there's a, a technicality in a Rule 56 motion, uh, Subdivision D, allows if you're unable to defend that motion yet because of not getting enough discovery, you can move to stay that until you get your discovery. Unfortunately, the plaintiff's lawyers did not do that. They answered the motion, essentially saying, it's a little technical, when you have a movement, the burden is on you to prove your case. And they're saying there's no way they could prove that uh, it didn't happen because they don't have the evidence. So there was a little bit of a, a misunderstanding on their part. However, the judge decided because they didn't have the evidence and the, the plaintiff filed opposition to the motion instead of, instead of asking to stay the motion to do discovery, the judge decided the motion based on the evidence that was there. Unfortunately, they lost that claim. Uh, they lost- Joe, the Joe, I wanna ask you something quickly. Um, do you think the family's attorneys did this to to basically get evidence against these three individuals. I think the family, and this is my opinion, the family was just so frustrated with nothing happening. And they took the bull by the, you know, it's just sitting there on your hands, waiting to hear from law enforcement what they're doing. Well, you know, Joe, it's fr it's frustrating for myself and Phil right now, because we don't, we're not privy to all the information. And the first thing I would want to know is, did they subpoena the cell phones of all of the people involved in this? Because when, after something happens, people always go on a text, you know, they go text crazy, right? See, and they're texting yeah. all, and that is a wealth of information. Phil, you want to comment on that? Sure, absolutely. I, I'm glad you brought that up, Bill, because, you know, sometimes uh, maybe something happens in the spur of the moment or it is an opportunity, but maybe the, the conversations that took place beforehand might, uh, uh, the people who were interviewed in the case uh, might get caught in a lie. Now, what I mean by that is this. I'm not trying to say that anybody was caught in any lies. Like you said, we don't have privilege of having a case folder in front of us. But in my experience, I would get a very solid interview on those four people that were with her at the at that night. From 12.30 till 4.30 in the morning, I'd get a good solid interview. Then if I went into cell phone records and found text messages that contradicted what they did, what they said, where they were, 
I have a, a new interview where I catch them in a lie, and I think I could really maybe get somewhere with that, get down to the truth. Now, when you brought up uh, with Joe that uh, the, the reason a lawsuit was done to possibly uh, you know, bring some new evidence to light. In the OJ case, when, when they had the civil suit, uh, when he was acquitted of murders, in the civil suit, a lot of things came to light. I mean, there was enough evidence in that case. We all know that he was guilty and there was a mountain of evidence, but a lot of other things came out that really cemented it. So I think that, you know, like Joe said, the family was probably distraught and this was a way of maybe moving things forward. But sometimes if, if it hadn't been dismissed, maybe there would have been depositions where somebody would have started sweating and said, I'll tell you the truth. You never know. Or things would have been um, spoken about and talked about that could have been used in the criminal case, you know? So, and, and one other point I want to make the cell phone, her cell phone was found. That would be interesting to me to see what was said on it, because usually, you know, how college kids are all kids, everyone, even uh, guys like us, we're going to go out. We talk about it beforehand. So maybe she had some friends that she was talking to. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm, I'm going to go here. I'm going to go there. It, it might put a better timeline on what she did prior to who she was, what her plans were, you know, who she was going to see. And that might lead to more interviews, you know, Phil, even as far as relationships with past text messages, you can get a pretty good idea. I always say like a cell phone is a treasure trove of information. Absolutely. And in this case Absolutely. that she left it in the bar was very, very unfortunate. But you know, the other thing, Joe, and I want to, maybe you could address this and we don't know the answer to this. And in no way are we criticizing anyone in law enforcement. I wish I knew more that I could uh, comment more about the investigation, but we're not privy again to the case folder. But Early on in the investigation, I, you know, I've worked hundreds of homicide cases. The first thing I would have wanted to do, of course, is to dump all their phones, to subpoena all their phones, search warrants on all their phones. And But you need, as you know, Joe, you're an attorney, you need probable cause to do that. So yeah. could that have been the obstacle in them not being able to get uh, search warrants for the phones? No, I don't think that would have been hard because you show the nexus and, and the close in time that to her disappearance that she's with these people. So I don't, I don't think that would have been an issue. I think they probably did that. But as you, you guys know, the family's frustration was probably that they weren't being given all the information, and rightfully so, that not to share everything with the family about all the details. You want to protect the integrity of the investigation. So they decided, and I thought it was brilliant on their own to go out and do their, I mean, I would do it myself if I was faced with my daughter not coming home uh, and, and relying upon someone, you know, miles away to handle this. Um, I would want to be proactive. And, and they did that. They filed uh, subpoenas for several people. And they went back earlier in time. I think it was May 27th, with, from May 27th until September 30th. Uh, they got a, a big block of time to try to see, like you said, especially after the fact, when you start talking about, oh, my God, what happened last night? And what do you think? Oh, I tried calling her. I couldn't get in touch with her. It could have been exculpatory information that was received as well. But you really, it, it's important to get that. So... Uh, I would have loved to seen that. I don't think the subpoenas were, uh, there was a motion to quash and then immediately there was the motion for summary judgment and it was granted. So I don't believe the subpoenas were ever, uh, you know, 
executed or, or, or went forward. Bill, Bill, go ahead. Bill, I want to make a point on that. I okay. want to make two points, actually. One, I agree with Joe. I don't think there would have been uh, a tremendous hill to climb to get subpoenas based on the fact of their own statements. They admitted they were with her all the, you know, they put all themselves with her from 1230 till 430 in the morning. So I don't think the subpoena would have been so difficult for their cell phone records. But there was another uh, point that Joe made about uh, keeping stuff close to the vest, holding information. And even from the family, as hard as it is, sometimes people that are emotional, if you say something to a family member about an ongoing investigation, and now they might have occasion to say it to someone else or see that person and blurt something out, so it could really uh, sidetrack the case. So a lot of times, you know, it, it takes a lot of patience for the family uh, in a homicide investigation to not get all the facts. I mean, that Myself, I always, and, and everybody that I worked with, we always tried to keep the family in the loop about things. Uh, when a case went on, we would try to talk to them once a week and just try to give them little updates and stuff. But you can't give them everything for the simple fact that you don't want to compromise the investigation. So and I and Phil, the family can be a huge, a huge investigative resource also. Because people are Absolutely. telling the family things that they may not tell the detectives, you know. Joe, I want to mention one other thing. And, and again, we're not privy to the case folder. But these three individuals that were named in the uh, civil suit, at some point, they lawyered up. You want to comment about that? Yeah, I, I got to say, uh, the fact that they lawyered up is not terribly alarming to me <clears throat> because of the circumstances. And there, there's a lot here. And their exposure may have been initially that, you know, they were with her and contributed to her drinking and uh or it could have been that, you know, there may have been a, a sexual encounters going on. So I think there was a lot of paranoia about, hey, you know, I better just get some protection. Uh, you know, they, they reached out to their parents or whatever and lawyered up. I don't think that in itself should be evidence of any kind of guilt. They were involved with this woman who was heavily intoxicated, I believe was also using some kind of drugs. Uh, they were at this party. So I think they had their own issues of liability, whether it be civil or criminal, that it was smart to do that. But unfortunately, it hampers the, abil the ability of the law enforcement to go forward with their case. 100%. Just folks, at the bottom of the screen right now, if you have any information, the Bloomington, Indiana Police, that's their number, 812-349-3318. Believe me, I've worked hundreds of these cases, and the police need your help. They need you. If you know any information, the littlest, you may not even think it's important. Give them a call. You know, they have a tips log. They have to follow up on every single tip that they get. And if you know anything, or again, you can contact us at Police Off the Cuff. That's our website, policeoffthecuff.com. You can go on that. You can email us. You can uh, get a hold of uh, Joe Murray, the attorney. Phil Grimaldi right now, he's, uh, he's, he's on the DL in Brooklyn, so I don't think you can get a hold of him. But there's two ways you can get a hold of us, through Joe Murray or through myself, Police Off the Cuff. Or, of course, the uh, Bloomington Police, there's the number right there, uh, Bloomington, Indiana Police. Uh, Phil, let's get back to the um – I just wanted to comment one last thing about what Joe just said. Um, the fact that they did lawyer up at some point, from what I read on the internet, it sounded like they lawyered up uh, – Probably, you know, days after the initial report, let's say. I mean, I don't know for sure, but it, from what I read, it sounds like it wasn't immediate. Now, me as an investigator, they cooperated in the beginning and they were giving some type of a statement. 
the red flag would be if I show up on a missing person case and I try to talk to somebody and say, I'm not talking about my lawyer. That's a red flag. So in this case, I agree with Joe. It's not alarming. And I think that maybe when they saw where the investigation was going, maybe they had culpability and they felt that they should lawyer up or maybe they were just trying to play it safe, a family friend or, you know, somebody else told them, you know, get an attorney before you continue speaking for the, to the police. Guys, I just want to go to a quick uh, commercial and we'll be right back. Uh, folks, if you want to tie to the high taxes in New York and you want to move down south, Carol Waters is a realtor in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Uh, she was formerly a bartender at Fitzpatrick Hotel in, in New York City for over 20 years. And now her and her husband, Rob Mayen, sell real estate down in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. She's a million-dollar salesperson. She really knows that area. So if you're thinking of moving down to Myrtle Beach, give Carol Waters a call, 914-261-6681. Or you can email her at carolwaterssellsmyrtlebeach at gmail.com. Um, He's on the show. He happens to be on the show tonight, but he's one of the biggest supporters of Police Off the Cuff, and that's attorney Joseph Murray. And as I said, if you have any uh, information relative to, to the Lawrence Spear case, you can give Joe a call at 718-514-3855, or he has a website, joe at jmurray-law.com. Uh, we have an election going on in New York City, and we... Uh, the police are heavily pushing uh, Elizabeth Crotty for Manhattan DA. She's the only Democrat that's police friendly, and uh, we we heavily endorse her. So give it, please go out and vote. And if you're voting for district attorney, vote for Elizabeth Crotty. She's the only law enforcement candidate that I see. So I'm that's I'm that's friendly, hundred yeah. yeah. percent. Let Phil, let's get back to the investigation. Yeah. And now it's ten years old, right? So we know that before, before we go 10 years, let me just make, I, I read a couple of things that happened subsequent to in August, 2011, which was only like two months, the, uh, the Bloomington, Bloomington police department, they conducted a search warrant at the landfill. Um, and when they were asked about it, they said it was based on tips on the spear case. And then later on in, in, uh, 2016, January 28, 2016, the FBI, uh, conducted a search warrant off of a tip. Uh, it was 20 miles from Bloomington. There was a male, I'm not going to mention his name, even though it's public knowledge, that was exposing himself to women, and they thought he might have been tied into it. Um, they did conduct a search warrant. We don't know what they recovered. Uh, we don't know what evidence uh, was there, but they did bring in an anthropologist, and they had cadaver dogs, and the cadaver dogs apparently uh, hit on a location, I believe it was in the garage, uh, so they must have did some digging and stuff. However, I don't think anything was recovered that was relevant to the case or any criminal investigation for that matter. Yeah. You know, some of the people in the chat are mentioning a guy who was arrested in 2015 yes. for committing a murder in, uh, in, in Bloomington, Indiana. And I believe they exhaustively uh, tried to link him to this case. And it, it uh, he wasn't, he wasn't linked to this case. So what well, you have to... Okay, on that so. case, Bill, I don't mean to cut you off, but on that case, I think you're talking about uh, the the subject was left Kilroy's. It was it was an Indiana University student. She left Kilroy's. She was killed. Her body was found the next morning, and the perpetrator's cell phone was found at her feet. That's how they tied him to the case. So initially, there was a big push to try and um, you know link the two cases. I mean, it is kind of coincidental. Same college, same bar that the person was last seen. But I don't know. 
if it was law enforcement that said it, I did read that there was a private investigation firm that that said that it was their opinion that it wasn't linked. But I don't know if law enforcement is, uh, you know, uh, have having the same opinion about that. But uh, nothing ever came of it. He was never charged. But uh, I think they probably took a good, long, hard look at that. A hundred percent. I just want to mention in these huge investigations, a huge net is put around everything. You talk to everyone, every little lead you get, any little hunch you get, you go after it. You know, you have to speak to friends, interview the family numerous times, interview the teachers, check video. The video canvas has to be exhaustive, you know, all over the place. Uh, of course, they have to interview those um, Corey Rossman, Mike Beth, and Jay Rosenbaum. And then I'm sure that was done uh, right initially. Uh, this is Corey Rosenbaum there. Uh, it was done initially, and I, I once they lawyered up, obviously they can't speak to them anymore. Is that Bill? I think you you said Corey Rosenbaum. It is Jay Rosenbaum and Co Corey no, no, Rossman? No, this is Corey Rossman. Rossman, okay. Yeah, and and this actually is Jesse Wolf, who was Lauren's boyfriend, and I don't know whether he was listed as a suspect, but you could see they had there was a hundred and forty five thousand dollar reward, so. It's not for lack of trying. I'm sure, look, the money is up there. Usually when there's money, people come out of the woodwork with information. And uh, they're doing all the things that are being done right. There's a private investigative firm out of New York that's been working the case. The FBI is helping on this case. But you know something? In major investigations, you could, this is Jay Rosenbaum. In major investigations, you guys know that more isn't always better. And sometimes if you get a few motivated people that are laser focused, that's better than having a hundred detectives. I've been on those cases where there's been a hundred detectives and it just gets so confusing that you have to more or less focus in like a laser on this case. Yeah, I agree with that, Bill. Sometimes when there's too many heads, they put you off in directions that the case really isn't going in. And then you kind of can, you know, you can get lost in the weeds, as they say, you know. A hundred percent. And, you know, how about even campus security? And I know they, I'm sure they were spoken to. Usually they'll know a lot of these kids because the kids are on campus. Uh, and it's very important in these cases for all the law enforcement agencies to speak to each other. And we all know that the FBI is famous for sharing nothing, right? <laughs> and I, I'm saying that right out front. And But it's important in these cases for all law enforcement agencies to share information. In fact, private eyes, they're probably getting most of their information from the local police, right? If the local police is, in fact, sharing with private eyes, maybe they're not even doing that. You, Joe, you made you a good point, Bill, yeah. about the uh, campus police, because uh, I have my daughter goes to uh, a college in Staten Island, and I have friends that work on the uh, campus that are retired police officers, and they know all the bad guys. They know all the troublemakers, you know, so that's a good point. And, um, you know, you had mentioned when we did the, uh, the show the other night that maybe uh, – they may have done it. We don't even know. But on the anniversary, to go to the location and hand out flyers uh, that might spike some uh, in interest, somebody might remember something that happened to be there. You know, uh, people sometimes have the same routine. Maybe on that day at that time, they pass through there. So it's a year later, and, uh, we, you know, you might, uh, you might catch them again, you know, which maybe they did that. Who knows? Uh, if they didn't, it would probably be a great thing to do. 
No, a hundred percent. Joe, I wanted to ask you from the legal end, what can the parents do at this point? Well, they've pretty much exhausted their legal remedies as far as a lawsuit and it's 10 years. So any other civil action would be, um, you know, kind of beyond the statute of limitations. I don't know what they can do legally at this point, except their proactive uh, hiring of uh, apparently they hired a detective firm here, but I would I would focus on the, the neighborhood locals in the area, <clears throat> maybe retired law enforcement from the area uh, who can really help out. But I think from a legal perspective, they've, they've done a, a huge job with this lawsuit. They came close, the discovery was the issue uh, but you know the court shut them down. So that really Joe, how about if there's an arrest? If there's arrest in the case, would the would the statute of limitations still be in effect, or would that would the clock start ticking again? If I there's an arrest, the law because in New York, ironically, the way you uh, we have it, the Son of Sam law was amended for that very purpose. The Son of Sam law uh, allows people who are not just arrested. Uh, if you're arrested and convicted they will seize your assets for five years and then allow the victims to come in, file a lawsuit, the statute of limitations extended again. Um, and uh, once you prevail on the lawsuit, the, the assets are there. And it happened in that Eddie Byrne case. When Eddie Byrne uh, was assassinated, uh, the, the uh, defendants who, who were convicted had no assets. So it's, there's no point in suing somebody who has no money so unfortunately, during his uh, time in uh, custody, he had a civil rights lawsuit where he won about $300,000. So the legislature went right back to Albany when they used to be friendly to law enforcement and amended the Son of Sam law, allowing uh, the victim services to s secure the assets and hold those assets for five years, then notify the victims and tell them, there's money here. If you want to file a lawsuit, we'll extend the statute of limitations. It's a great uh, piece of legislation, and it's useful. So I don't know if other jurisdictions have adopted it, but they should take a look at it because it really helps victims. I, I guess want to just show that this is a map. Uh, five years in uh, with this case, an FBI agent said who worked for ABC on one of those shows that this whole case took place in about a hundred yard, a uh, hundred yard area. So you could see there's Kilroy Sports Bar where they were drinking earlier in the night, uh, Corey Rossman's apartment, um, Lawrence Spear's apartment, and where Lawrence Spear was last seen. So all of these things, I mean, they it helps as far as knowing the location. But yet, ten years have gone by and. She's still missing. There's there's no body recovered. There's no new information, at least that we're privy to. And early on when we played that video, a gentleman said that this is not a cold case. And really what he means by that is that no one's given up on it. They're shaking the tree, and they try to come up with new information all the time. They're always talking to people. But do they have new information coming to them all the time, or is it? self-initiated. Phil, what do you think? 
Oh, I'm sure it's self-initiated. And, you know, sometimes in a, in a difficult case, a, a case that's old like this, you have to, I, we said it the other day, sometimes a fresh set of eyes or bring somebody in that hasn't really looked at the case, let them look it over and maybe uh, suggest different things to do. Um, in my opinion, um, I said that on the onset, if I was the detective assigned to this case, I'd try to get some solid interviews on those four people that were with her before she uh, disappeared. But I think one of maybe several things probably happened. One, she may have been drugged, obviously, in the bar. And that's why she was loopy and being carried and stuff like that. And she could have succumbed to that. Number two, she drank heavily, apparently. Maybe she ingested narcotics. We don't know what her, uh, her lifestyle was like. She could have overdosed. And then in panic, they uh, disposed of the body. Number three, I think would be, obviously, if there was some foul play involving those people that were with her, where something happened and they killed her and disposed of the body. Or if she actually left the apartment, uh, one or two things could have occurred there. It could have been a victim of uh, um, a crime of opportunity. She was uh, uh, walking down the street inebriated. Somebody saw her and took advantage of her. Or she could have been uh, targeted by a stalker, let's say, an ex-boyfriend or something like that who was laying in wait. I think those are really the only possible things that I think could have happened. If it was accidental where I had a case where a college kid was drinking and he wound up in the water and it was carried almost as a homicide and we kind of deciphered that it was accidental. He had gone over to the water, fell in and drowned because he was probably uh, heavily intoxicated. If that were the case with this young lady, the body would have been found more than likely. You know, I don't think that uh, there was, uh, you know, an accidental uh, end to this woman's life. It seems like there was foul play, obviously. And I think those scenarios that, that I laid out would probably be the most likely. Well, one good thing, yeah. at least for the people listening and to the fans and for people out there, is that there is no statute of limitations to, for murder. So this case could be solved at any time down the road. And I hate to say let's say the word murder, but 10 years have gone by and she hasn't appeared. And that's what it looks like. I think even uh, Mr. and Mrs. Uh, Spear had said that they don't expect that their daughter's alive. And I mean, just think of being a parent and the horror of that, absolutely not knowing what happened to your daughter. She was only 20 years old, you know, and it's just a horrible, horrible thing. And they want they want some kind of closure. They want to be able to, you know, if anything, bury their daughter or have something that lets them know what what actually happened. But at this point, they don't know. And ten years have gone by. Horrible. It's really horrible. You, you know, That's Bill, we talked point, about though. this the other night. I I had a case where uh, the case had. You want to call it called? It had gone called. It was six months that uh, we had nothing going on in the case, and one of the detective sergeants from the housing police, Buddy Manane, picked up the case folder, went through it, and he decided to go knock on the door of a witness that was already interviewed uh, minutes after the body was found. You know, and we had put the case on television. We had gone on crime Crime Stoppers. We didn't get one call, but the minute that they knocked on this door, and the woman opened the door and saw it was them. She pulled him into the apartment and said, listen, I've had this on my mind. I saw it on the news. It's on my conscience. And she gave up the murderer on that specific case. So it's never too late. Maybe those detectives, the FBI, they may go re-interview somebody and maybe somebody will say, you know, I thought about this and that, and maybe some good could come out of this where we could find out what happened to this young lady. You know, Phil, you're right. A hundred percent. Someone knows what happened to her. Oh, for know? sure. 
For sure. And it's just, it's an, an exhaustive re-canvas, redo this. And I said to you the other day when we were talking about this case, it's always important to keep starting over again. Let's go back to the beginning. Absolutely. What did, what did we miss? Did we miss anything? And you hit it on the head too. Get a bunch of fresh eyes to read the case. Let them read the case and tell and write down suggestions, you know? And I mean, people may think, oh, well, you guys are supposed to be pros. We are pros. But guess what? We're human beings. That's and right. someone may have a great idea that you didn't think of, you know? I mean, I used to write these voluminous reports on homicides that would be used to debrief the police commissioner. And sometimes they would wind up being 16 or 18 pages. And I wrote it when I was so exhausted, I could hardly keep my eyes open. And I would always have someone read it, you know, proofread it. Because I was like, you know, yeah, I could have, you know, and it's sort of like the same thing. Have someone else read the case and see what they come up with. Maybe they come up with, not everyone thinks the same way. Some people think, and I hate to use this expression, some people think outside the box. And some yep. sometimes outside the box is the way to think in cases like this. Any yeah. comments, Joe? Yeah, I, I would say that uh, uh, everything you guys said, I agree with. But to add to that, a case like this, where you're dealing with the witnesses, the people involved, were in their early 20s. Now, listen, I mean, it's just self-preservation. The parents are probably telling them, be quiet, don't talk. To, but it's 10 years later now, and they've moved on with their lives, and they're adults, and Maybe it's time to re-interview these people and go back to them and they'll say to themselves, okay, listen, I wasn't completely forthcoming when I spoke to you. Here's some more information. I just didn't want to disrupt my, my career path. I was going in a certain direction. It, it pays to re, you know, visit this and go back and re-interview the same people who, who you thought were dead ends and they were initially. Maybe now they'll have a change of heart and, and disclose stuff they previously didn't disclose. I also love the FBI being involved for the one tool that we don't have. And Phil, you're right. When you get someone, you lock them into a story, and all of a sudden you're able to disprove even a benign aspect of it, but you showed that they lied. That's important. What the FBI has that we don't have is that if you do that with a federal officer, you could be charged federally. And uh, you know, like the Martha Stewart case, you, you can end up in prison you know, for uh, uh, lying to the FBI. So that's the one tool they have. And I wonder how many interviews they actually, you know, uh, took on. But uh, you're absolutely right. If you could get that initial interview down and then disprove something later, it's just so valuable. You know, Joe, and one of the other things you forgot to mention about the FBI is they bring lots of money with them. I they was have just going to say that. They have unlimited resources where... Local police departments, you know, even the NYPD, well, especially the NYPD, they cut you off on your overtime at a certain yeah. level. They don't yeah. want anyone, you know, making that overtime list, you know. And the FBI, I don't, I hear the FBI doesn't even like to work overtime, but they more or less have lots of money to spend, you know. You, you know what, Bill? You, you know, brought up a really, really good point because I just was involved in a case a few years back, and the FBI was working with the NYPD on a case, and they spent probably three, four $400,000, forget overtime, just in uh, phone records and different things like that, that you know how it was. If you had to get uh, phone records pulled in the NYPD, you had to pull teeth to get, uh, you know, 
the DA's office to sign off on it and then the, the NYPD to pay for it, you know? So when you have the FBI involved, the resources that they have, they just like, they go to the U.S. attorney, we need a search warrant, here you go. Well, dump a phone, here you go. Dump a cell tower, here you go. And a dump a cell tower is, is very, very expensive. It could be like anywhere from fifty to $100,000 to dump a cell tower. People don't realize what, the amount of money that it costs, and there's a lot of records on those things, you know? So, And they also have analysts that can go through all of this this stuff and narrow down, you know, what we're looking for. Because you dump a cell tower, it could be a few million uh, calls in that time frame. Phil, that Phil explain to our audience what dumping a cell tower means. They may okay. not know exactly okay. what you mean. Well, when you use your cell phone, uh, there are cell towers in the area throughout the whole United States that are uh, placed in areas to give service to generally the whole United States. So the closest so t cell tower that you are near, when you make that phone call, the information is logged into that cell tower and then it's sent to wherever you're calling or, or whoever you're talking to. So now if you're in an area and we know you're there, we can dump that cell, cell tower and see who you were calling based on, we won't get the, the actual conversation, but we'll be able to get the phone number uh, and we can decipher who it was that you were talking to. Or if you receive a call, it works both ways. So cell towers turn out to be very, very important in investigations. And in specifically this case that I was talking about, uh, the cell towers and, and the cell phone information placed the guy, he, he executed the victim. He shot and killed the victim in front of his home and the cell phone and the cell tower put him at the exact location at the time that the murder happened. And they had they had video cameras before and after the murder, but they didn't have the actual shooting. They showed uh, they showed the guy producing the gun and putting on a glove and stuff like that. And um, but the cell phone tower and the cell phone itself was able to put the guy at the location. So that's a wealth of information. And Joe's right. Bringing in the FBI, you bring those resources with you. So sometimes they could be a pain in the neck, but, uh, you know, sometimes they're, uh, they're worth their weight in gold for an investigation. hundred percent. I just want to shout out to some of the people in the chat, Jamie Pimentel, Joey Brooklyn. Yo, Joey Brooklyn. Watch, watch you. Annalise, um, Rachel, Rachel Pranzo, you guys are the best. You and Peter Pranzo, Lieutenant, the great Lieutenant Peter Pranzo. Uh, Duty Ron, thank you for the $10 super chat. Princess Mitch, Angie Yang, thank you for the $10 super chat. Lisa Day, um, OG Bosgal, Annalise again. Uh, Christopher Strom from Brooklyn, Brooklyn to Baghdad. 12-step uh, woman. Uh, all you guys are, are huge supporters of Police Off the Cuff. I want to thank you so much. You're always here watching us. Uh, Angie Yang, again, thank you again for that 999 Super Chat. Um, this case is a really uh, a case that really just breaks your heart. You know, uh, we mentioned before that we're all parents, and to see uh, the Spears have to deal with this, and you could see. It's aged them, you know, and it, it, it's really they're heartbroken people. You'll I, you know, they say you'll never get over ever get over the loss of a child, you know, and no matter how old they are, if they die before the parent, uh, which looks like you know in this case she's missing, she's listed as missing, but uh, it's just it's just a, a heartbroken heartbreaking thing, and um, no one's gonna quit though. We in law enforcement never quit. We're going to work this case forever, you know, and uh, hopefully 
we'll get some information on this. And I, I just want to say also to the people in our audience, um, I listed the number of the uh, Bloomington, Indiana police. There it is again on the screen. If you have any information, give them a call at 812-349-3318. You could also call or uh, get a hold of me on the Police Off the Cuff website, leave a message for us, and I'll get the information to the Bloomington police. All you people on social media, keep this case alive. That's the only way this case is going to be solved. Keep talking about it, you know. That's how, you know, we in law enforcement, we talk about shaking the tree. And it's so damn important. Annalise, thank you so much for the 999 Super Chat. It's so important to shake that tree. And in the NYPD, a lot of times, you know, people get arrested and they don't want to go to prison. And they may know something. And they in the 7-5 squad, they used to have something on the wall that said, if you know someone that killed someone, let us know so you can go. I like that little rhyme, but uh, it got people to talk, you know. Yeah. And that's how, you know, you got to shake that tree, get people to talk, get people to give you information. Keep this case alive because we want to help these these two parents out, the, the Spears, help them out, get closure for their daughter, Lauren. Uh, Phil, any other any <clears throat> thoughts? Yes. Um, I want to just say that obviously we had no uh, privy to the case folder. We don't know what investigative leads they've taken, what they've done. We have general information. I'm sure they did a ton of stuff. And there may be a suspect already in their sights, but there's not enough evidence to charge that person or maybe suspects. There may be more than one. So like you said, uh, shaking the tree, any information, maybe something little can turn this case around where they'll have enough to proceed with making an arrest. Um, I know that these guys in the FBI and, and the and the police, the local police department, I know they probably did a ton of work. I mean, we know that they said, uh, based on the, uh, the the clip that you played, that they did so many uh, warrants and they and they did so much uh, legwork on it. And I'm glad to see. I mean, they, they mentioned some big names like Kim Kardashian, people like that who have millions of uh, followers on social media. That's great because that's going to get the word out. I, I just hope it continues. And uh, maybe after this show, with the help of God or going forward, you know, with these uh, high profile people being involved in it, something comes forward and at least it'll give this family closure. That's what I would love to see. If this family could get an answer to the mystery of their, their daughter. I said the, the, in the last episode that we did that they're probably stuck in neutral. I can't even imagine. It's, it's horrible. But uh, let's just give uh, tip our hats to those uh, FBI agents and the uh, police department doing their job and, and hope that uh, we can come to a successful conclusion. And, Bill, if things... Uh, you know, uh, heat up again on this case. I'd be glad to come on again and discuss it. And uh, well, I, well, Phil, I just wanted to say anyone out there that's um, friends of Lauren that would like to come on the show with us to maybe has information that we're not privy to, as we keep uh, telling you, we don't have access to the case folder. We haven't been working this case for 10 years. We're just using our expertise as investigators to talk about this case and to put maybe some, not any really new light upon it, but just to put some light upon it. And to get someone maybe out there, come on the show. We'll do this again. I'll bring Phil Grimaldi. He'll, he'll come in He'll come in from Brooklyn. And uh, I'll get Joe Murray. We'll get him out of the courtroom. And we'll do this again. And we'll, uh, we'll talk to a friend, a family member. Someone knows that a lot about this case. 
and we'll just keep keep it going out there. Keep the, the consciousness going and keep trying to keep this case on the front burner. Do you have any final uh, remarks, Joe? Yeah, Bill, I love what you do. And I, I think, you know, the big heart you have to, to do what you're doing here is so important. This case can be and probably will be solved in the near future. Remember John Walsh with that, that show he did with America's Most Wanted, how, you know, they, they, they subdued all these people that were absconded for years. People are out there with information. They just need to be tickled a little bit and, and bring that information forward. So by keeping this out there, you're, you may just reach out to that one person that has the information to lead to, you know, further uh, evidence and, and solving this case. So there was so many people in the area, so many people that knew them and, and interacted with them. I find it hard to believe that there is all uh, leads have been exhausted, that there are other people out there who could give information. So keeping this up, I will contribute in any way you, you need me to. Well, Joe, I'd like, you know, I would love to come on and talk about this case again, uh, maybe with a family member, maybe a friend of Lauren's uh, that can maybe shed some more light on this. We're sort of, in a way, a little bit blind as far as knowing the full story because we can't cross the T's and dot the I's because we don't have the accurate information right now that the, the investigators that are on this case have. And they know they may have a direction. You know, and that's very important in any major investigation, a homicide, missing person, is to have a direction because that's the, that's the way you go and all your efforts go to that certain direction. And it's not, I mean, it sounds simple, but it's not always easy in a homicide case. Sometimes you change direction numerous times. You find out the direction you were on in the beginning was wrong. And then you got to make a 360 and start all over again, like we said before, Phil, right? How yep. many times in a homicide do you just start all over again? Right? Absolutely. I was talking to my partner, Artie Williams, that I worked with for many years in the 6-0 squad in Coney Island. Earlier today, I was talking to him about this case. And one of the things that we had in Coney Island, we had these big high-rise buildings. So if there was a shooting outside the building, we'd have to canvas the whole building. And I said, Artie, you know, we used to hate doing it. He goes, Philly, I think I spent more than half my time in the squad in a building doing canvases, he goes, but it had to be done. And it's something that has to be done. And when you have to go back and do it again, it's going to be tedious, but you never know when you knock on that right door or you talk to that right person and uh, everything comes together. And, you know, we kind of call it stirring the pot. If, if you have a direction to go in, and I'm not saying that they do, but if you have a direction to go in, sometimes if you stir the pot a little bit, you put a little heat in the area of the person that you think is involved in it. And, you know, you shake the tree, stir the pot a little bit, and sometimes uh, something good will come out of it. And I really love the idea of having somebody close to Lauren come on the show because they might be able to shed light, like you said, on things that we don't know, and we can talk about it and maybe uh, spark interest with all of these people on social media and stuff, and we might just be able to come up with uh, a conclusion to this case. You know, Phil, sometimes the person with the information is someone on the periphery a peripheral person that you don't think knows anything. And that could be the person right. that gives you that information that allows you. Look, I always used to tell my students when I taught college, every question gets you an answer and every answer produces another question. And that's how you build a case. Exactly. You know, and again, that sounds very simple, but it's just investigation one-on-one, you know, 
questions, answers, answers, more questions. And you build that pyramid, you know. But uh, I just want to thank you guys for coming on the show. Uh, you're two of the best professionals I know on the NYPD. And you guys are doing great things yourself, Joe. You're a great defense attorney. You even were a pretty good boxer at one time, I heard. But, uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and Phil Grimaldi, trouble, but, uh, I enjoyed it. It got you in a little bit of trouble, but you got out of it. You know, you you dug your way out of it. You know, yeah. and Phil, you've been you you you're you were a great investigator. You're becoming a great partner on these uh, police off the cuff real crime stories. I, again, I appreciate it, Bill. I appreciate it. And listen, on a case like this, it's a pleasure to come on and, and try and help. You know, can't even imagine what those poor people are going through. And if there's any lesson here that we could take from this, you know, uh, they say everything bad, sometimes a little good comes out of it. These college kids, wake up, stay together, keep your cell phone charged, keep it in your pocket, don't lose it, keep it close to you, stay with your friends, don't leave even for a minute. And of course, of course, always watch your drink that somebody doesn't throw something in it. There's plenty of animals out there that'll love to do stuff like that so just you know, you know phil you got you got a fan in the chat oscar ferrofino says it's always great when you have phil on <laughs> <laughs> listen we're just doing what we could do just it's it comes like second nature to me you know yeah it's it's uh look you guys are great and i really appreciate both of you uh folks again i i don't want to beat this to death but if you have any information or anyone out there uh is friends with Lauren wants to come on the show. You know how to reach out to me. I, I think I put up the uh, I put up the banner there. There's the police off the cuff website, just policeoffthecuff.com. You can message me if you need to get a, a hold of uh, Joe Murray. Um, I'll get you his I'll get you his banner right now. I'm giving him a little extra a little extra commercial time here. There's <laughs> Joe. There's uh, his website is joe at jmurray-law.com. He's a hell of a great attorney. If you need an attorney, you know, nothing to do with this. He's a great attorney to have out there. He's in your corner, and he always will be. And um, that's that's Joe Murray. Anyway, guys, I think that's about it for tonight. I want to say good night, and I want to say thank you so much for coming on. For you folks listening, this is Bill Cannon, Phil Grimaldi, and Joe Murray for Police Off the Cuff. Real Crime Stories. Thanks for listening. Stay safe.